This is section 52 of Newspaper Articles by Mark Twain. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Newspaper Articles by Mark Twain, section 52, The Sacramento Daily Union, May 1866, part 3. The Sacramento Daily Union, May 23, 1866. Honolulu, April 1866. The Whaling Trade. The whaling trade of the North Seas, which is by no means insignificant, centers in Honolulu. Shorn of it, this town would die. Its businessmen would leave, and its real estate would become valueless, at least as city property, though Honolulu might flourish afterwards as a fine sugar plantation, the soil being rich and scarcely needing irrigation. The San Francisco Chamber of Commerce might do worse than make an effort to divert the whaling trade to her city. Honolulu fits out and provisions a majority out of ninety-six whalers this year, and receives a very respectable amount of money for it. Last year she performed this service for only fifty-one vessels, so you can see how the trade is increasing. Sailors always spend all their money before they leave port. Last year they spent a hundred and fifty thousand dollars here, and will doubtless spend double as much when this year's fleet returns. It is said that in the palmy days of whaling, fifteen or twenty years ago, they have squandered as high as a million and a half in this port, at the end of a successful voyage. There have been vast fleets of whale ships fitted out here, and provisioned, and recruited in a single year in those days, and everything promises that the whaling interest will now move steadily forward, under the impetus of the long-continued high rates of oil and bone, until it eclipses in importance any degree it has ever attained in former times. In chartering vessels to carry home the catch of whalers, in equipping them, and supplying and recruiting them, and in relieving their crews of their money at the end of the season, San Francisco might manage to get several hundred thousands a year out of the whaling trade, if she could get it into her hands, or a million or so, should whaling again reach its former high prosperity. It costs from one thousand dollars all the way up to twenty thousand dollars to provision and fit a whaler here for her voyage to the North Seas, including paying off crew and taking them by and large. The average is about six thousand dollars to each vessel. Of the ninety-six ships which go north from here this season, only forty-nine will fit here, the other forty-seven being the increase in tonnage and, on their first voyage, were equipped at home. The home equipment is generally for two full seasons, so Honolulu will not get the job of supplying these new ships for a couple of years yet. But after that she will have their whole custom, unless, perhaps— San Francisco can make a satisfactory bid for the whaling trade in the meantime. There have been over four hundred whalers in the North Seas at one time in the palmy days of the trade, two-thirds of which were supplied in this market, and paid Honolulu over a million for doing it, even at the moderate prices of those days. Concerning Oil and Bone Oil is valuable, but whalebone is more so. Sperm whales are chiefly caught at the line, or west art, as they term it. They do not yield any bone, but the oil is worth from seventy-five to one hundred percent more than any other at the present time. Humpbacks and devilfish are caught on the coast of California between seasons. 
the yield is called coast oil they yield no bone okotsk whales yield about twenty per cent less bone than the arctic whale and it is worth four to five cents a pound less than arctic the catch is a term which signifies the fruits of a voyage the average catch for three years past of ships sailing out of this port was about six hundred and fifty barrels of oil a year to each vessel and eight thousand pounds of bone consular prices the consular prices at which crews of whalers were paid off here in the fall of eighteen sixty five were as follows whale oil sixty four cents a gallon coast oil sixty sperm oil ninety two okotsk bone seventy four cents a pound arctic seventy eight in gold these prices were not one half what the articles were worth in the eastern markets in currency past and present the palmy days of whaling the phrase which one hears here as often as he hears in california of matters which transpired in an early day there or in washoe of the flush times of sixty three refers to a period some fifteen years gone by but the palmy days in a modified form lasted clear up to eighteen fifty three let me give a few figures the fleet brought to this port in eighteen fifty three oil four million gallons bone two million twenty thousand two hundred and sixty four pounds then for several years the yield gradually fell away till in eighteen fifty eight the figures were oil considerable under three million gallons bone one million six hundred and fourteen thousand seven hundred and ten pounds five years after in eighteen sixty three in the midst of the war the catch had fallen away down to oil seven hundred and thirty two thousand thirty one gallons bone three hundred and thirty seven thousand forty three pounds still lower in eighteen sixty four oil six hundred and forty two thousand three hundred and sixty two gallons bone three hundred and thirty nine thousand three hundred and thirty one pounds but in eighteen sixty five in spite of the pirate shenandoah the trade almost held its own it had struck bottom as we say in washoe and was ready to start up again the yield was oil six hundred and twenty one thousand four hundred and thirty four gallons bone three hundred and thirty seven thousand three hundred and ninety four pounds these last figures were for sixty seven ships all told fifty one of which went from here we may look for better results this season with ninety six vessels in the fleet and next year the palmy days may come again for everything that can be turned into a whale-ship by any process known to art is being bought up or chartered in the east now for this trade and in due time the icy solitudes of the north seas will once more become populous with the winged servants of commerce what commands the whaler patronage i have talked whaler talk and read whaling statistics and asked questions about the whaling interest every now and then for two or three weeks and have discovered that it was easy to get plausible information concerning every point connected with this commerce save one and that was why is it that this remote port in a foreign country is made the rendezvous of the whaling fleet instead of the seemingly more eligible one of san francisco on our own soil this was a stunner most people would venture a chance shot at one portion of the mystery but nobody was willing to attempt its entire solution the truth seems to be that there is no main central prominent reason for it 
but it is made up of a considerable bundle of reasons, neither of which is especially important when taken by itself. San Francisco versus Honolulu. 1. See how the case stands. In Honolulu it is not a holiday job to ship a crew, natives comprise it chiefly, and the government frowns upon their employment as sailors, because it causes the agricultural interests to suffer for want of labor. And you see the plantations build up the whole kingdom, while the whaling trade only builds up Honolulu and one or two smaller seaports. So the government first made the whalers enter into bonds of one hundred dollars for each man, that is, to ensure the return of that man to the kingdom. The bond was increased until now it is three hundred dollars, and shipping taxes of various kinds have been instituted, which amount altogether to about six hundred dollars for each man, which must be paid in gold to the government when the man ships. Ships usually go out under bonds of three thousand dollars to ten thousand dollars for the return of their crews. The bond system, which was intended to keep the Kanakas all at home, don't work. The whalers still are obliged to take natives or go without crews. So, urged by the agricultural interest, an attempt will be made in the legislature, which convenes two weeks hence, to pass a bill entirely forbidding the shipping of natives. If this is accomplished, it will give San Francisco one good chance to get the whaling patronage, and it is a better and more permanent and safer thing to have than rich but ephemeral mines. In favor of San Francisco, it is acknowledged that as soon as it became the established whaling rendezvous, whaling crews would repair to it, and men could be shipped at small expense and without bonds. 2. It is 2,100 miles from San Francisco to Honolulu, so that these whalers, by coming here, do 4,200 miles more sailing than they need to do, and waste about a month and a half of time in doing it. 3. They cannot insure directly here. The policies must go all the way to the east, and then maybe the insurance office may approve them, and maybe it may reject them, and perchance the ship may be lost in the meantime. In San Francisco, insurance could be directly affected. 4. Here the whole whaling fleet, nearly, is paid off at once, and in gold, and, of course, exchange goes up to a high figure, started at five or six last fall and went up to ten percent premium. It stands at two and a half even now, when there is no especial call for money. In San Francisco it need never go to two and a half at any time. Whalemen's bills are the best paper in the country, being always sure and prompt, scarcely a single failure to pay them is recorded. 5. Facilities for transshipment of oil eastward would be much greater in San Francisco than here. 6. Facilities for chartering, equipping, provisioning, and recruiting whalers would be much greater and cheaper in San Francisco than here. 7. Here it takes a mild eternity for a whaler or his agent to communicate with the ship-owner at home. In San Francisco, your steamers, overland stages, and telegraphs bring them face to face. I think I have stated the case fairly. In facilities for shipping crews, in economy of time and distance of travel of a voyage, in facilities for insuring, in cheapness of money, in facilities for transshipping cargoes, ditto, ditto for chartering and equipping vessels, and ditto, ditto for communicating with owners, 
Honolulu cannot begin to compete with San Francisco. Then why does the whaling fleet rendezvous in a remote port in a foreign land, instead of a convenient one at home? An attempt at a solution. I have got the question answered by piecemeal by many different persons, and I will jot down the several items here. They say it is hard to get crews in San Francisco, but they confess that this would not be the case if that city became the established rendezvous. They say men can run away so easily there, and put the ship in for their home bills, etc., but that here they can't get off the islands. They say the ship is preyed upon by everybody, and fleeced for everything from spun yarn up to salt beef. They say their ships are worn out by bulling in the harbor there, but the harbor is smooth and roomy here. And they say, finally, and then the old sea-dogs gnash their teeth and swear till the air turns blue around them, that there's more land-sharks, lawyers, in Frisco than there's fiddlers in hell, I tell you, and you'll get pulled before your anchor's down. If there is a main central count in the indictment against San Francisco, that is it. A whaler can be snatched up, pulled, by his men and the land-sharks, and hauled into court in San Francisco with the utmost facility, but they cannot touch him here. The lawyer who took charge of a sailor's complaint against his captain might as well emigrate. He could practice no more in Honolulu. True, when a case is so flagrant that it cannot possibly be overlooked, a sort of trial is sometimes had, but it never amounts to much. The above are the whaling captain's arguments or were in the first place, but from their mouths they have gone into everybody's else, and belong to nobody in particular now. Then there are other arguments, which you hear oftener from other people than from the whalers themselves. For instance, several persons have explained about in this wise. In San Francisco, the agent transacts the captain's business exactly as it is done here, and then brings in a bill, item by item, for commissions a bill that any man can understand in a minute, and it looks expensive. But here the agent, with fine sagacity, charges no commissions. At least they do not appear on the surface. They are faithfully wrung into the general bill in a sort of debtor-to-sundries fashion, though, and nobody notices it, and consequently nobody grumbles. Another powerful argument may be stated thus. A whaleman don't amount to much in San Francisco, but here he is the biggest frog in the pond. Up there the agent lets him dance attendance until more important business is attended to, and then goes out with him and assists him in just such of his concerns as absolutely require assistance, and then leaves him to paddle his own canoe with the remainder. But here the agent welcomes the old salt like a long-lost brother, and makes him feel that he is a man of consequence, and so he is, and should be so treated in San Francisco. And the agent attends closely to all the whalers' shore business, of every kind, whatever, if it is desired, and thus the captain's stay in port is a complete holiday. A Suggestion if I were going to advise San Franciscans as to the best strategy to employ in order to secure the whaling trade, I would say, cripple your facilities for pulling sea captains on every pretense that sailors can trump up, and show the whaler a little more consideration when he is in port. All other objections will die of themselves. A Step Made A nucleus is already formed up there. 
Swift and Allen have opened a branch of their new Bedford house in San Francisco, and their ships, they have eight at sea now, will rendezvous there hereafter. They are going to add several vessels to their fleet this season. Sixteen whalers, and possibly many more, will rendezvous at San Francisco this year. Those captains who have tried that port during the past two years are satisfied with it, all but one or two, who have been pulled. Mark Twain Return to San Francisco Daily Union Index The San Francisco Daily Union, May 24, 1866 Honolulu, April, 1866 Paradise and the Paris Joke I have ridden up the handsome Nuanu Valley, noted the mausoleum of the departed kings of Hawaii by the wayside, admired the neat residences, surrounded by beautiful gardens that border the turnpike, stood at last, after six miles of travel, on the famous Pari, the divide, we would call it, and looked down the precipice of six or eight hundred feet over which old Kamehameha I drove the army of the King of Oahu three-quarters of a century ago, and gazed upward at a sharp peak close at my left, springing several hundred feet above my head like a colossal church spire. Stood there and saw the sun go down, and the little plain below, and the sea that bordered it, become shrouded in thick darkness, and then saw the full moon rise up and touch the tops of the billows, skip over the gloomy valley, and paint the upper third of the high peak as white as silver, and heard the ladies say, "'Oh, beautiful! And such a strong contrast!' and heard the gentleman remark, "'By George! Talk about scenery! How's that?' It was all very well, but the same place in daylight does not make so fine a picture as the Kalihi Valley, pronounced Kalihi, stress on the second syllable. All citizens talk about the Pari, all strangers visit the first thing, all scribblers write about it, but nobody talks or writes about or visits the Pari's charming neighbor, the Kalihi Valley. I think it was a fortunate accident that led me to stumble into this enchanted ground. ANOTHER PARADISE For a mile or two we followed a trail that branched off from the terminus of the turnpike that leads past the government prison, and bending close around the rocky point of a foothill we found ourselves fairly in the valley, and the panorama began to move. After a while the trail took the course of a brook that came down the center of the narrowing canyon, and followed it faithfully throughout its eccentric windings. On either side the ground rose gradually for a short distance, and then came the mountain barriers, densely wooded precipices on the right and left that towered hundreds of feet above us, and up which one might climb about as easily as he could climb up the side of a house. It was a novel sort of scenery, those mountain walls. Face around and look straight across at one of them, and sometimes it presented a bold, square front, with small inclination out of the perpendicular. Move on a little and look back, and it was full of sharp ridges, bright with sunlight, and with deep, shady clefts between, and what had before seemed a smooth boulder, set in among the thick shrubbery on the face of the wall, was now a bare rampart of stone that projected far out from the mass of green foliage, and was as sharply defined against the sky as if it had been built of solid masonry by the hand of man. Ahead the mountain looked portly, swollen if you please, and were marked all over, up and down, 
diagonally and crosswise, by sharp ribs that reminded one of the fantastic ridges which the wind builds of the drifting snow on a plain. Sometimes these ridges were drawn all about the upper quarter of a mountain, checking it off in velvety green squares and diamonds and triangles, some beaming with sunlight and others softly shaded, the whole upper part of the mountain looking something like a vast green veil thrown over some object that had a good many edges and corners to it, then a sort of regular eaves all around, and from this the main body of the mountain swept down, with a slight outward curve, to the valley below. All over these highlands the forest trees grew so thickly that, even close at hand, they seemed like solid banks of foliage. These trees were principally of two kinds, the koa and the kukui, the one with a very light green leaf and the other with a dark green. Occasionally there were broad alternate belts of each extending diagonally from the mountain's bases to their summits, and here and there, in the midst of the dark green, were great patches of the bright light-colored leaves, so that, to look far down the valley, along the undulating front of the barrier of peaks, the effect was as if the sun were streaming down upon it through breaks and rifts in the clouds, lighting up belts at intervals all along, and leaving those intervening darkened by the shadows of the clouds. And yet there was not a shred of a cloud in the whole firmament. It was very soft and dreamy and beautiful. And following down the two tall ridges that walled the valley in, we saw them terminate at last in two bold black headlands that came together like a V, and across this gate ran a narrow zone of the most brilliant light-green tint, the shoal-water of the distant sea, between reef and shore, and beyond this the somber blue of the deeper water stretched away to the horizon. The varied picture of the lights and shadows on the wooded mountains, the strong dark outlines of the gate, and the bright green water and the belt of the blue beyond, was one replete with charming contrasts and beautiful effects, a revelation of fairyland itself. The mountain stream beside us, brawling over its rocky bed, leapt over a miniature precipice occasionally, and then reposed for a season in a limpid pool at her base, reflecting the dank and dripping vines and fans that clung to the wall and protruded in bunches and festoons through breaks in the sparkling cascade. On the gentle rising ground about us were shady groves of forest trees, the kou, the koa, the breadfruit, the lauhala, the orange, lime, bukui, and many others, and handsomest of all, the ohia, with its feathery tufts of splendid vermilion-tinted blossoms, a coloring so vivid as to be almost painful to the eye. Large tracks were covered with large hau-hau bushes, whose sheltering foliage is so thick as to be almost impervious to rain. It is spotted all over with a rich yellow flower, shaped something like a teacup, and sometimes it is further embellished by innumerable white bell-shaped blossoms that grow upon a running vine with a name unknown to me. Here and there were wide crops of bushes completely overgrown and hidden beneath the glossy green leaves of another species of vine, and so dense was this covering that it would hardly be possible for a bird to fly through it. Then there were open spaces well carpeted with grass, and sylvan avenues that wound hither and thither till they lost themselves among the trees. In one open spot, a vine of the species I last mentioned had taken possession of two tall dead stumps, 
and wound around and about them, and swung out from their tops and twined their meeting tendrils together into a faultless arch. Man with all his art could not have improved its symmetry. Verily, with its rank luxuriance of vines and blossoms, its groves of forest trees, its shady nooks and grassy lawns, its crystal brook and its wild and beautiful mountain scenery, with that charming far-off glimpse of the sea, Kalihi is the valley of enchantment come again. Sam Brannan's Palace While I am on the subject of scenery, I might as well speak of Sam Brannan's Palace, or the bungalow, as it is popularly called. Years ago it was built and handsomely furnished by Shillaber, now of San Francisco, at a cost of between thirty and forty thousand dollars, and in the day of its glory must have considerably outshone its regal neighbor the palace of the king. It was a large mansion with compact walls of coral, dimensions say sixty or seventy feet front, and eighty feet depth, perhaps, including the ample veranda or portico in front. This portico was supported by six or eight tall fluted Corinthian columns, some three feet in diameter. A dozen coral steps led up to the portico from the ground, and these extended the whole length of the front. There were four rooms on the main floor, some twenty-four feet square each, and about twenty feet high, besides a room or so of smaller dimensions. When its white paint was new, this must have been a very stately edifice but finally it passed into Brannan's hands, for the sum of thirty thousand dollars, never mind the particulars of the transaction, and it has been going to decay for the past ten years. It has arrived there now, and it is the completest ruin I ever saw. One or two of the pillars have fallen, and lie like grand Theban ruins, diagonally across the wide portico. Part of the roof of the portico has caved down, and a huge gridiron of the plasterless lathing droops from above and threatens the head of the apostrophizing stranger. The windows are dirty, and some of them broken. The shutters are unhinged. The elegant doors are marred and splintered. Within, the floors are strewn with debris from the shattered ceilings. Weeds grow in damp mold in obscure corners. Lizards peep curiously out from unsuspected hiding-places and then scurry along the walls and disappear in gaping crevices. The summer breeze sighs fitfully through the desolate chambers, and the unforbidden sun looks down through many a liberal vent in roof and ceiling. The spacious grounds without are rank with weeds, and the fences are crazy with age and chronic debility. No more complete and picturesque ruin than the bungalow exists today in the old world or the new. It is the most discouraged-looking pile the sun visits on its daily round, perhaps. In the sorrowful expression of its deserted halls, its fallen columns, and its decayed magnificence, it seems to proclaim, in the homely phrase of California, that it has got enough pie. Thomas Jefferson John Quincy Adams of San Francisco, agent for the State Agricultural Society of California, and agent of pretty much all the other institutions of the kind in the world, including the Paris Exhibition, who has traveled all over these islands during the past eight months, and gathered more information, and collected more silkworms, and flowers, and seeds, and done more work, and stayed longer in people's houses an uninvited guest, and got more terrific hints, and had a rougher time generally, on an imperceptible income, than any other man the century has produced, 
is Sam Brannan's trusted agent to put the bungalow in elegant repair and draw on him for $5,000 for the purpose. It is not possible for me to say when the work will be commenced or who will take the daring contract, but I can say that so small a sum as $5,000 expended on the bungalow would only spoil it as an attractive ruin, without making it amount to much as a human habitation. Let it alone, Brannan, and give your widely known and much-discussed agent another job. The King's Palace Stands not far from the melancholy bungalow, in the center of grounds extensive enough to accommodate a village. The place is surrounded by neat and substantial coral walks, but the gates pertaining to them are out of repair, and so was the soldier who admitted us, or at any rate his uniform was. He was an exception, however, for the native soldiers usually keep their uniforms in good order. The palace is a large, roomy frame building, and was very well furnished once, though now some of the appurtenances have lost some of their elegance. But the king don't care, I suppose, as he spends nearly all his time at his modest country residence at Waikiki. A large apartment in the center of the building serves as the royal council chamber. The walls are hung with life-size portraits of various European monarchs, sent hither as tokens of that cousinly regard which exists between all kings, at least on paper. To the right is the reception-room, or hall of audience, and to the left are the library and a sort of ante-room, or private audience chamber. In one of these are life-size portraits of old Kamehameha the Great, and one or two queens and princes. The old war-horse had a dark brown, broad and beardless face, with native intelligence apparent in it, and something of a crafty expression about the eye, hair white with age and cropped short, in the picture he is clad in a white shirt, long red vest, and with a famous feather war-cloak over all. We were permitted to examine the original cloak. It is very ample in its dimensions, and is made entirely of the small, silky, bright yellow feathers of the man-of-war, or tropic bird, closely woven into a strong, coarse netting of grass by a process which promises shortly to become a lost art, inasmuch as only one native, and he an old man, is left who understands it in its highest elegance. These feathers are rare and costly, because each bird has but two of them, one under each wing, and the birds are not plenty. It requires several generations to collect the materials and manufacture this cloak, and had the work been performed in the United States, under our fine army contract system, it would have cost the government more millions of dollars than I can estimate without a large arithmetic and blackboard. In old times, when a king put on his gorgeous feather war-cloak, it meant trouble. Some other king and his subjects were going to catch it. We were shown other war-cloaks, made of yellow feathers, striped and barred with broad bands of red ones, fine specimens of barbaric splendor. The broken spear of a terrible chief who flourished seven hundred years ago, according to the tradition, was also brought out from among the sacred relics of a former age, and displayed. It is said that this chieftain stood seven feet high without his boots. He was permanently without them, and was able to snake an enemy out of the ranks with this spear at a distance of forty to sixty and even a hundred feet, and the spear, of hard, heavy native wood, was once thirty feet long. 
the name of this pagan hero is sounded no more from the trumpet of fame his bones lie none knows where and the record of his gallant deeds is lost but he was a brick we may all depend on that how the wood of the weapon has managed to survive seven centuries of decay though is a question calculated to worry the antiquaries but it is sunrise now and time for honest people to begin to turn in mark twain end of section fifty two